Hi, I'm Ian DeLisi. Welcome to episode 21 of Essential Conversations. You're about to hear my conversation with journalist, broadcaster, news anchor, producer, Emery King, who I had the pleasure of working for in Detroit. During this two-part podcast, we talk about his time covering the White House during the Carter and Reagan administrations and how being a black journalist in network news definitely had a ceiling. He was a great pianist and thought music would be his career path, but broadcasting got his attention and changed the trajectory of his life. Here's Emory King. I ended up in a communications curriculum, a speech and drama emphasis, and found it to my liking. I really enjoyed what I was doing. And somewhere in there, I was taking a radio television writing course as an elective. And I was sitting in the class one day. There was another actor, uh, Mickey Donovan, and I was in the back of the room where I always hung out. And <laughs> the teacher came in and said, there's a local radio station in Hammond, Indiana, that is looking for a news reporter part-time. Anybody want to go work on a radio station? So Mickey and I looked at each other and said, you want to be on the radio? Yeah, okay. Yeah. And so he said, okay, here's where you report. And report over to WJOB Radio and ask for a guy named Cosmo Courier. Are you kidding me? (laughs) Yeah, he's the news director. So we go over to WJOB, and there's this little guy named Cosmo. And he talked like this. I'm Cosmo Courier. And Cosmo Courier became uh, my mentor. And again, one of those figures who was just instrumental in my development. And he laid a foundation for me in journalism that was unbelievable to me. I mean, I couldn't believe what I was learning from him covering small stories and events for radio in this small community of Hammond, Indiana. City Hall, police crimes, politics, all of this sort of thing. And then I really gravitated to that and spent the next two years working there and did everything there was to do with that radio station. I did sports play-by-play. I covered the Indiana High School Basketball Tournament Championship and did that. I did I spun records. But there was always this emphasis on news. That was what I learned, and that's what I loved. And it wasn't until after two years I was offered a job in my hometown at a bigger station, Gary, Indiana, WWCA Radio, took it and was there for 10 months before I ended up getting a job at WBBM News Radio in Chicago, which was a CBS-owned and operated station, which was big-time radio. So, yeah, that was the trajectory it took. And then from radio in Chicago, I was able to make the transition into TV in Chicago. So I actually had the good fortune to start my television career in the nation's second-largest market, where most people start in smaller Mm -hmm. markets and work up. I lived in, in the Chicago media market, so I was lucky. There's a a light shining on journalism in a way now that it really hasn't been in a while Mm -hmm. for a number of reasons. Mm -hmm. We're (laughs) re-appreciating, I think, the importance of good journalism and investigative journalism in a way that we may have not been so conscious of how important it was. What did Cosmo? Cosmo? Cosmo. His name was actually Manuel Charles, so that's (laughs) that's why it's Cosmo. (laughs) What was it about what he taught you that stayed with you to basically turn you into the journalist you became? Because if he laid such a great foundation, you ended up being, you know, we'll talk about where your career took you, but I always wonder what is it that drives somebody, what makes them good, and he helped make you good. He taught me to develop early on ethics and standards in journalism and to have a sense of compassion for people, for the stakeholders on both sides of the equation in the news story and taught me that this was a powerful, powerful instrument that was a vital part, and and this is the truth, we would have these conversations, a vital part of a democracy. 
that our function was to inform, to educate, and to engage the public on issues that were significant to their community and to their lives, to give voice to the voiceless, and to shine a light in dark corners. And so it was armed with those principles and that standard of operating that I, was, that I approached every story, and I tried to approach every story I did armed with that. And it stuck with me to this day. I used it at the DMC when I left television. I use it in any form of communication I do. So that's what Cosmo did for me. Good man, Cosmo. He was. As you watch journalists today as a consumer of journalism and news, what goes through your mind? Because you were in journalism at a very different time, and we'll talk about that. But this leads me to ask the question of, is that the foundation, do we think, of what journalists strive for today? Or does the 24-hour news cycle perpetuate a standard that may not be what it was at one time? If you had asked me this a year ago, I, I probably would have leaned more in the direction of saying that I was disappointed. The events of this administration and the performance of uh, journalists now in approaching what's going on uh, gives me great hope, and I'm heartened by what I see and by what I'm seeing. I think the whole 24-hour news cycle and just the sheer numbers of people. I'm still very disappointed with this approach because it, too often you find people yelling at each other across the chasm and it's just a cacophony that goes nowhere. But when it comes down to the crunch, I like what I'm seeing. I will say this, however, I think that Donald Trump enjoyed coverage that no other candidate did during the primaries because he was sexy news. And as a result, they gave him all kinds of time during the primary that was just really unwarranted and uncalled for. Over a period of time, I think when uh, they began to realize the degree and the extent to which they had been used and allowed themselves to be used and contributed to this, I believe they put him in office. By that time, I think something clicked and it was, uh, uh-oh, let's, let's get to work and do what we're supposed to do. Not that they aren't having a significant uh, amount of help in doing it from the subject himself, but yeah, I'm pretty heartened by what I'm seeing at the network level. At the local level of news, television news does its purpose, serves its purpose in terms of, I guess, giving the um, hits, runs, and errors, and, you know, here's the weather for tomorrow and a few yucks with, with uh, sports, but... Uh, by and large, it's the happy-go-lucky anchor team with a little anchor banter over and out. See you tomorrow, folks. But there are different expectations, too. I found Detroit to be very unique. I couldn't believe, when I moved here, I was amazed at how people respond, react, respect you as a television news person. And I came to realize that Detroit wasn't in that Boston, New York, Washington, Philly, Chicago, L.A., they never hook around the lake mm -hmm. and come up to Detroit. Besides, why would you come to Detroit? You know, you might as well go to Gary, Indiana, for that matter, because it was... So people here tend to elevate local television people, local radio people, and sports people. And they're very trusting, and they rely on you. And so this isn't an indictment of television news at all. And those good, hardworking people that I know who are still there doing what they can. But it is uh, an indictment of management and a bottom-line mentality that prevail, the greed factor, more, 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 with fewer resources. And I think that that is leading to the demise of television news overall. I mean, and coupled with technology, viewership is way down. 
Let's get to putting you on the White House lawn for a second here. So your career brought you to be the NBC White House correspondent, and you covered the Reagan administration. This is going to sound like a very pedestrian question, but for those of us who don't do this and have never been on Air Force One and don't know what it's like to sit with the press corps and talk to the President of the United States, I really want you to tell us what that experience is like. I would assume it must be different now. Maybe it's a bigger group of people, given that there are so many more news outlets. But what is that like? I was always a little frightened because you have a sense that there's no room for error. You can't mess up. And that's the way you go to work every day and you think, I can't mess up today. I got to be on the money. At least that's the way I approached it. Very intimidating at first and very heady, but incredibly satisfying when it's done well and rewarding to think that you were a part of this process of educating, informing, and engaging not just your viewers in a smaller market, Chicago or whatever it is, but across the nation and possibly even across the world. So it was quite an experience. So what's like the day in the life look like? Well, I first went there and I went to NBC in 1980. And my bureau chief was a man named Sid Davis. And Sid said to me one day, okay, we're going to want you to go to all the beats in Washington and fill in so you know your way around. So I had to go to the Pentagon, the uh, State Department, and the House and the Senate and all of that. And then there came the White House. So I went down to the White House, and you get your pass, and you go through the Northwest Gate. Well, when you walk in that Northwest Gate, the driveway curves around. You know, the West Wing sits over here, and the White House is here. And there were tripods, four tripods on the lawn, the driveway to your left as you're walking in, four tripods for the three networks, and CNN was in its infancy. It had just come on board. They were like the stepchild. So that's where the correspondents would go, and they would do their nightly stand-ups for the nightly news or the morning shows and everything. Today, if you go to the White House and you walk up that same driveway, the tripods aren't on that part of the lawn, more to the front of the White House. There was a, was a lawn on the right side of that driveway that leads parallel to the executive office building, and they've removed the grass, and there was gravel, and there was just a sea of tripods and lights, I mean, which gives you a sense of how many outlets are there with passes to be in this place. I mean, I countless numbers of news outlets have this presence there. But in those days, it was just us. And uh, NBC's chief correspondent was a very, very nice man who became a dear friend, the late John Palmer. And John and uh, another dear lady named Judy Woodruff were the two correspondents. And a guy named Bill Lynch was the radio correspondent. And they welcomed me as the new guy. And the first day I was there, John said, okay, here's what's going on today. We have a stakeout in the driveway where the West Wing is, where where people come out to the microphones to talk. And we have the press briefing uh, with Jody Powell. And Jimmy Carter was president then, by the way. And uh, we're going to have this. And then the president is going to make a speech here in the East Room. And then there is a photo op in the Oval Office. So we're going to want you to cover the photo op in the Oval Office. (laughs) I can't cover that. I just got it. I don't even know. You know, so I had to get in line and I'm led into the Oval Office. And there's Jimmy Carter sitting there with some visiting dignitary. And they're sitting there and you go in. Well, there was a guy at ABC, many of you may remember, named Sam Donaldson. Big booming voice. And he's always yelling questions. And he's yelling out a question. Well, I was afraid to open my mouth. 
So I'm just watching this, and I'm busy. I want to look around and look at the Oval Office and everything, but i got to pay attention. So that was my first day at the White House and my first experience at the White House. I mean, I went down for about a week, and then it was after that I was actually called on to go there and begin to do some work and some stories. One of the most fascinating things about White House coverage to me is you said, what's a day like? I went down there one day, and they said, the president will be making a trip to Mount St. Helens today, which had just erupted, this volcano out in Oregon. It's 9 o'clock. They have a press briefing at 9 o'clock in the press secretary's office. So when you're looking at that press room today, Mm -hmm. there's a door where they come out. The president comes out. Well, if you go in that door to the right, there's an office that faces the front of the West Wing, and that was Larry, Jody Powell and Larry Speaks had that office. Presumably, Melissa McCarthy has it today. (laughs) And so, (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) So you would gather in there every morning at 9 o'clock and kind of review what the day was going on. And then there was the more formal press briefing at 12.30 or 1 o'clock, which they now carry live. So after 9 o'clock, you come back, you call the producers. You have to call the producers in Washington, and you're the chief producer in Washington and the bureau chief and, and those people for nightly news. And then you have to call the nightly news producer in New York, the big guys, and tell them what happened and what to expect for that day. So at 10 o'clock, I'm doing that and doing everything. And all of a sudden, there's this announcement that the president is going to go to Mount St. Helens. You need to be at Andrews Air Force Base at 1 o'clock. You dash home. You throw clothes in the bag. You find a way to get out to Andrews Air Force Base, which is, you know, a jaunt. And the press plane leaves before the Air Force One leaves. And so you get on the press plane, and by the end of the day, you find yourself on a plane heading out to Oregon. He gets out to Oregon. The time change allows some daylight. The president gets there behind you. You get off the plane. You shoot his arrival in case the plane crashes or whatever. And then it's like the body watch on these trips. He lands, gets immediately on a helicopter. You're put on helicopter a big military helicopter, and you go up and you circle this volcano. It comes back, you got to go and file the stories. So by the time you get to bed, it's 11, 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock, whatever it is, up at 6 a.m. to go down to L.A., a breakfast event down to L.A., and you do the event and you do whatever else, and then you fly across the country to Miami, Florida, gets to Miami, does an event that night, goes to bed, and then the next morning he's going to go with Senator Ted Stevens to Alaska on a fishing trip. So that was three days, two days really, and part of a third in the life of Jimmy Carter. He was quite different in what he took on in the course of the day. So when President Reagan came in, it was a picnic because he was older and because his day ended at 9 o'clock, period. Over. You knew. Nine o'clock, you're good. And travel was announced well in advance. Did you like covering that administration? Oh, yeah. I loved covering it. Well, because there was just so much to learn and so much to do. What I loved about it and what I learned about it was that everything emanates from the White House. It's the top of the rung. So here's what happens. In those years, because you didn't have all of these opportunities to be on TV, you had all of these correspondents around the world competing to be on the air in a condensed period of time. You had 20, 22-minute newscast, the NBC Nightly News or the CBS Evening News, ABC World News Tonight. And then you had these little five-minute news segments on the morning show, the Today Show, which was on from 7 to 9 with news from an hour and a half hour for five minutes, unless you did what they called a showside piece, which was a special thing. And everybody is desperate to be on TV, and you can't. If you're in the White House, you're going to get on. 
You're going to get on if you're in the Pentagon, if there's some war going on or, or military skirmish. The State Department and the Pentagon, those folks are good. They know they're going to get on, right? And then you'll have the Capitol Hill story, whether it's the House or the Senate or whatever's going on legislatively. Okay, well, how many minutes does that take? Then that leaves for all of these other bureaus, because NBC had bureaus in Chicago and L.A. and around. ABC used to have a bureau here in Detroit, one in Chicago, one in Detroit. So you have the domestic story, whatever the big domestic story is, the train wreck or the disaster or the big murder. And then finally, you have the wounded duck or the goose with the arrow in his neck <laughs> that they're going to do from somewhere, right? And that's it. And so you have a lot of pissed off correspondents around the world who are saying, why did they put him on? Why did they put that story on? I got a story here in Frankfurt, Germany, or I've got this or I've got that. So the White House was the place to be. So I liked that because I knew I was going to get on. But that means you're going to be working your, your fanny off a lot. And again, that gets back to the pressure of the job and the fact that you can't make mistakes. The travel was fun. Fascinating to watch the Secret Service, this whole mechanism of the White House, move and how the Secret Service protects the president. And you get to know these agents. More significantly, the agents get to know you as opposed to all of the local journalists who are waiting for you when you reach your location. You are kind of in this cocoon, so they look out for you and you kind of know how to work with them. And that's fascinating. And then it's also fascinating the choreography that goes into traveling with him in terms of the press pool and who flies on Air Force One, who rides in the motorcade, where you ride in the motorcade, and what happens in an emergency, for instance, when he got shot. We were in Augusta, Georgia, when he went to the Masters tournament. I guess that's where they play the Masters. And he was going to play golf, and he was out on the golf course. And I was on duty that day, and we weren't allowed on the golf course, but we were outside. Then we found out there was some lunatic that broke his way into the clubhouse. And all of a sudden, man, you just see cars, you see agents out, and they have machine guns ready. I mean, they're holding them visibly, and they get very serious, and at that point, get out of their way. So they went and they corralled him, got him out, and then that night, they blew up an embassy in Beirut, <laughs> and we were out and home and on our way to Beirut pretty soon. So, I mean, it was just week in, week out. It was like that. Pressure, 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 but a lot of fun. Coming up in part two of my conversation with Emery King, we talk about race, leaving network news, and landing in Detroit. I'm Ann DeLisi. I'm Rob Reinhardt. And we're about to bring back the perfect opportunity to honor your favorite pet and support WDET. During our spring fundraiser, Ann and I will combine our shows so you can honor your dog. Or your cat. Or your dog. And WDET with a gift of support. We're looking forward to hearing about your pets, no matter what kind of cat that is. Cats and dogs and any other pet you may have will be part of our fundraiser. And if you can't wait till the weekend, make your gift now at WDET.org slash give. Or call 800 959 I'm Andalisi, and here's a conclusion of my conversation with Emery King. You ended up here for a couple of different reasons. You realized that as a black journalist, you were not going to get any further than you were. You yes. weren't going to get the anchor seat, right? There, there was a ceiling. At what point did you say, you know what, this is never going to happen? In those years, they had, uh, there was a man named Max Robinson. And Max Robinson was the first black male nightly news anchor. He was on ABC News. Many of you may remember Max Robinson. He was a local journalist in Washington, D.C., and then ABC hired him. But rather than give the show to Max, they had two white anchors on, and Max was out in the Midwest. So Frank Reynolds was in Washington. Peter Jennings, who I really, really admired. 
was in New York, and they would do the leadoff, and then Max Robinson in Chicago. I thought that struck me as odd that they went with three anchors. If you're going to give it to Max, give it to Max. Mm-hmm. The other thing, it didn't take much to see and to realize if you just open your eyes, and a lot of viewers don't get this. If you open your eyes and you count the numbers, then it becomes pretty clear what's going on. Each network had one black male star. Start counting. Well, okay, there's Max. Ed Bradley was at CBS. Ed had a very distinguished career as a correspondent covering Vietnam, was a White House correspondent, and was on 60 Minutes. He was a great journalist. And NBC didn't have a black male star, but they had a little Emory King from Gary, Indiana in the White House, right? So I'm thinking, I'm on a pretty good track here. There came a time when Tom Brokaw left the Today Show, went to Nightly News, and they auditioned for his replacement, and they auditioned five white males. John Palmer, Bob Jameson, Bob Kerr, Garrick Utley, Chris Wallace, if I'm not mistaken. And each one would sit in, I think, for a week or a day or whatever it was. Brian Gumble did sports on the Today Show, and I think it was on Fridays. He had a sports segment that he would do. Brian ended up with the job. I was told that he was called to sit in when whoever was supposed to be auditioning was ill. He sat in and they and everybody went, wow, this guy's good, and he got the job. Well, if that's the case, I'm thinking, well, if he got that job by almost by happenstance, then what does that mean for me? Jackie said, NBC just got their one black male star. It's only going to be one. So right there, that placed a ceiling on how far it's going to go. I truly believe that I could have stayed at the White House, was eventually offered a position in New York at the United Nations, may have been able to go to London at one point, I probably could have enjoyed a journeyman's career at the network level, been very well compensated, not have a marriage or a child Mm -hmm. to this day. I started thinking about going back home to Chicago. On a more personal level, I just didn't like it out east. I like Washington. It's a beautiful city, but I didn't like living there. I missed the Midwest, and we both did. We wanted a child and wanted our child to grow up in the Midwest with I don't know, our values or whatever. So I'll never forget when I moved here and I would say good morning to people. They'd actually smile and say good morning back. So, so that's why I left NBC News. And that's how I found myself in Detroit because there was no opportunity in Chicago at the time. But Post Newsweek owned a station here and there was a need to have someone here and there was an opportunity to come here and develop as an anchor, news anchor. And so I had to make a transition back to local news from network news. Network news is a very serious, straightforward approach to delivering news, which I really, really loved and did my entire career. And it was just kind of the way I was trained from Cosmo on. And so that was the style of reporting that I brought to Detroit. And there were some rocky times when I got here because I'm coming in back into an arena that's Mm. happy talk and hey, how's the weather, Chuck? And I'm the straightforward kind of news guy. So, and I'm thinking, well, these are serious issues these people have in this community I'm going to be reporting on. I better roll up my sleeves and get to learn it. Can you talk about what happened when you left Channel 4? And you don't have to talk about it. I don't mind talking about it. So I've been here for 19 years. There had been people who preceded me in news who thought, well, I can go to Detroit or I can go to Chicago or I can go to some local market and use that as a stepping stone to improve my position or whatever. And so there were people who came here with that view, and that's a mistake. First of all, it's not the right thing to do. And secondly, it shows a total lack of respect for the people that you're servicing, for the people who live here and for the issues that are important in their lives. 
and people said, you're going to Detroit. So you go through that thing, right? Well, that wasn't a problem for me because it's a step up from Gary in a way that you mean it, maybe. You know, so that wasn't a problem at all. And so when I got here, I found it to be this fascinating place. What I found most fascinating and rewarding to me was the respect of the people in this community and the love. Because once they accept you, once Detroiters accept you, you're golden. Mm -hmm. In order to get them to do that, you do have to demonstrate to them that you have a commitment to improving this community. That right. was my experience. After a period of trauma, my first year, when I said, what in the world am I doing, man? I saw Hirohito, the emperor of Japan, last month, and now I'm being sent up some alley on the east side to cover some triple homicide, and I'm supposed to promote it and do the promos and do the whole local TV thing. And so there was this going on internally. And also I was asked, I was expecting too much. And so the head of Post Newsweek Television flew out from Washington, a guy named Jim Snyder, who was instrumental in my coming here. And he had a very nice fatherly talk with me. And he said, look, you know, you're not going to have the resources here that you have at the network. I mean, because, you know, you're covering a story at the network and you pick up the phone, you call the producer and you say, I need some pictures from London when the president went there. And I also need some pictures from the West Coast and I need this. And people are scurrying to get what you need to make your story good. Well, when I called WDIV and said, yeah, I need some file footage of this or that and the other, they said, I, well, I don't know. I, I, I. So after a while, he said, you don't, have to, you don't have to knock it out the ballpark every time you do a story. So I settled back, and once I settled down and got over that, and, you know, kind of cooled my jets a bit and got a little bit off, off what must have been a high horse. The young reporters who were coming up then were about 10 years behind me. When I moved here, I was 37 or so. So you had a lot of 25-year-olds, early 30s. And these reporters were working, striving to get where I came from. And they were competing against each other to climb over each other to get there. And so I'm in that mix all of a sudden because when I got here, it wasn't to go anchor the news. I had to go out and learn this place and report like them. So the attitude that I brought was, okay, I've been here. I did that in Chicago. And so, okay, i got to do this again. Wear the beanie and do it. But I started to look around, and then I realized that I wasn't competing with them. I had my eye on two people in this town. I had my eye on Mort Krim and Bill Bonds. And Mort and I worked together in Chicago. He had anchored the news in Chicago when I was a young reporter. So we knew each other. And I thought, okay, Tom Brokaw got the job I was shooting for. So what do I need to do to get in that seat and to do that? And no disrespect to Mort, but that was the deal. And Bill Bonds, who I didn't know then, was all I heard was Bill Bonds, Bill Bonds. Bill Bonds was the number one guy in, in the whole bit. Well, okay, if he's number one, then that's who I'm going after. So inherent in that, I must have projected a sense of arrogance to many of these younger reporters. And I don't know where management was and all of that. Well, fast forward, been there a while, and then we had our scrapes and our fights. So I'll give you an example. Towards the end, when it wasn't, things weren't going that well, Mort, as Mort's career went on and as he got older, he got closer to retirement, he would take longer periods of time off. Mort did 5 to 6 and did the 11 o'clock. When Mort would leave, Rich Make would move up and sit beside Carmen and anchor the news, right? And then I'd fill in for Rich. Eventually, I got that 6 o'clock position. When Mort would leave to go away, rather than me going into the, to replace Mort, a really nice guy named Dan Mountney, who wasn't anchoring the show, anchored the morning news, would come and sit for Mort. 
So I'm looking at this going, here we go again. Eventually, in those years, they had a TV column, and it was a free press reporter named Mark Gunther. Remember him? Mm -hmm. Mark Gunther wrote diligently about television and radio news. He was a media writer correspondent for the free press. Mark Gunther called me and said, what's going on with this? How come you're not doing that? You've got to ask them, man. He wrote a piece on it. He did his good journalism work and then approached the general manager at the time and said, what's the deal with this? And it was after that article was written that I started filling in for Mort. Read into that what you will. It's pretty clear to me, right? So Mort would go for longer periods of time, and I'm sitting next to Carmen, and Carmen and I are anchoring the news. So you got black male anchor, black female anchor, because the model across the country is the older, more experienced, credible white male anchor with the younger, very attractive, less experienced, minority female anchor, substitute the minority. On the West Coast, it's Asian or Hispanic. If it's in Miami, it's Cuban or whatever, right? And that was kind of the model. This model was upset. Well, what happened over a period of time, because he was gone a long time, we would have sustained periods of working together, and the ratings began to reflect that we beat Bill Bonds, who was number one, and we beat him. The two black anchors so eventually, I was called up to the general manager's office, told, you know, Mort is retiring. You're not going to get the job. Oh, why? It's subjective. And that was the problem. Because by any objective standards, I was the most experienced writer. I, was, I had been places neither Mort nor Bill Bonds had been. Covered the White House. I anchored, did a little bit of anchoring at the network level. I was deserving of this position. But it was just something I can't put my finger on, so we're going to go with Devin Skillian. I began to develop a bad attitude, but it never showed or never manifested itself in terms of my level of reporting and my commitment to the people of Detroit who had embraced me. And I never judged my performance on television by the standards of management. It was always based on the reaction that I got from people who watch me on TV, and the reaction I got from people who watch me on TV was quite different from the reaction I was getting there. Well, there came a point where, where I was assigned a story. I was told, okay, all of the top anchors, Ruth and everybody, had to mirror or shadow somebody in a certain profession and be them for a day or do a story on them or something. Everybody had to come up with something. Well, I didn't come up with anything. I was busy. I was covering Kwame or covering whoever I was covering, right? Well, we'll pick one for you. So they had me go over to what is now Joe Muir, I think, over in the Renaissance Center, the restaurant there, Seldom Blues. Yeah. Go over to Seldom Blues. There's a black gentleman over there working in the bathroom. And when you're in the men's room, he takes his whisk broom and he wipes off your jacket and he's got the hot towels there for your face and he's got this and he's got that. Why don't you go do him? As Coleman Young said in that interview I did with him, and in Coleman Young's language, it was, I know a racist dog when I see him. I can smell him. I feel him. I know it when I see it. You can't tell me otherwise. If that quacks like a duck deal, that's what that was. I knew it. I go over to Seldom. I take a camera crew. I go over to this restaurant, and I go back, and I meet this gentleman. Nicest man in the world. Come to find out, the guy's got a business. He's working that bathroom, and he has, I don't know, three, four, five other employees working restrooms around southeast Michigan, and I'm guessing he must be doing pretty well financially. So that's the story I told. They never aired the story. And then there were some other things that happened that I ended up butting heads with the news director on. And March 11th, uh, 2005, I'm called up to the general manager's office and told that they aren't going to renew my contract. Well, you know, you don't like to wear makeup. 
no, <laughs> I don't. Never did. Well, I have a birthmark on my forehead, and that used to be a big thing. You got to cover it up and wear makeup and all that. But I did. Problem was that they were in breach of contract because my contract didn't end until March 30th. So um, that was on a Friday. What I think is that they probably anticipated that there would be a reaction in black Detroit and that there would be some picketers or demonstrators outside the station for a few days and because that's what typically happened and then they would go away. And I actually got a call from people asking if I wanted that kind of support and I didn't ask for it. So that never materialized. But what did happen immediately when it got in the paper on Saturday morning was that what I will call white Detroit, suburban Detroit, in overwhelming numbers, called the station and flooded the lines and actually began to write not just uh, the station here, but began to write Philip Graham, who ran Post Newsweek in Washington, D.C., and was the chairman. And I am, uh, to this day, humbled. Uh, I get emotional about the outpouring of support that I got from, from black Detroit and from white Detroit. It was unbelievable. So Monday, there was an editorial uh, in the paper, and my attorney called and said, they want to talk to you about coming back. So that was after one weekend. So I eventually renegotiated a contract to go back for three years, not to be on the air. They didn't want me on the air anchoring but to develop programming for them. I was going to be paid handsomely to develop two hours of, of commercial television broadcasting, four half-hour shows. I worked with a very nice man, a producer, Tom Lo Cicero, who is a dear friend to this day. And I called Tom and said, look, here's a deal. They want me back. I'm going to cut a deal with them to do these programs, and I want you to produce them. What I also want you to do is interact with them. I don't want to talk to them. Call me when you need me. I'll go down, do the stand-ups, be on TV, read the script, but that's it. Part of the reason for that was because in that interim period, while I, and I had gone out to New York and actually gone to MSNBC and was thinking about going back to network, I went to Chicago and interviewed in local TV, and it was in that period that I got that call from Mike Duggan. And I told Mike everything that was going on. He says, fine with me. And so I negotiated the DMC deal, the two contracts that I had with the DMC, while I was negotiating the Channel 4 deal, but Channel 4 had no idea that I was talking with the DMC. It was also during that period that I got a call from Governor Jennifer Granholm, and Governor Granholm asked if I would be on the Michigan Film Commission. Say, so, yeah, that sounds interesting. I'm free to do those things. That should be a kick, bring movies to Michigan. And so then it turned out she wanted me to be the chairman of the commission and replace Jeffrey Figer. What <laughs> man, life after television is really weird. So... Um, so I told Channel 4, look, I have a need to be on other television stations because I'm going to be the chairman of the Michigan Film Commission. Channel 2 or somebody may want to interview me. Oh, oh well, okay, okay. You can be on public television or the, any other station in that capacity or whatever. I signed this contract with Channel 4, and they say, okay, great. Now we can get you back. Let's do a promo and saying you're back. So they went out and said you're back. And they sent Ruth out to the community house in Birmingham to sit down and do an interview with me the day that they signed the contract. He's back. And they went on the air and said, hey, Emory King, blah, 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 blah. And Ruth comes on and says, well, we're so happy to have you back. And I said, Ruth, I'm not back. I mean, they contracted my company to work for you for Channel 4 to do programming. I'm not doing news anymore. I got a call from the news director um, at the time, and he said, look, election coverage is coming up, and we'd love it if you come back and do politics and sit on the desk. And I said, that's fine. Who do I invoice? Do I invoice news or programming for this? And they got insulted. And so they said, well, you know, he just wants to get paid. 
duh. <laughs> and um, so that's how I left Channel 4. And that's how I went back to Channel 4. And Tom LoCicero and I, we did some really, really nice stuff then. We did a half hour on Elmore Leonard. We did Jeff Daniels. Uh, we did Jeff Daniels. Mitch Album. We did Mitch Album. And they ran those pieces at 7 p.m. on Saturdays. There was a guy at Channel 4 when I was working there named Ted Talbert. Did you know him? I've heard some colorful voicemails that he left for you. That's, <laughs> Ted <laughs> that's Tal- what I do Ted, remember. Well, uh, Ted, it, it actually, it was one of the best things that Channel 4 did for me. They introduced me to Ted Talbert and said, he's going to be here doing long-form reporting, and we would love to have your voice connected with his pieces. So Ted produced a series of documentaries on the black history of Detroit. That, just amazing. And, um, Rosa Parks? No, 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 I did Rosa Parks. Two things, real quick. The pieces that we did, Rosa Parks, The Freedom Train, which was the Coleman Young story I told you about. We did uh, the history of the Rouge plant in terms of bringing immigrants. It was like the Ellis Island of Detroit. And the history of blacks in golf. Father Coughlin out in Royal Oak. We did a series of pieces, and we were able to get those pieces distributed by Filmmakers Library in New York to colleges and universities around the country. They're at Wayne State right now in the University of Michigan. So that was one thing. But Ted did, did a series of Wonderful pieces on Black Bottom, Paradise Mm -hmm. Alley, Idlewild, and I was proud to have my voice associated with those pieces. In that spirit, Tom LoCicero and I produced these pieces that I'm telling you about now. So at that period, for those three years, I was doing these pieces for Channel 4 that Tom was producing, and I would just go in and approve the writing and whatever and, and voice them. My love and attention was at the Detroit Medical Center because it was new. It was at a point in my career when I could go in another direction and I was learning so much and shortly became completely overwhelmed working by myself around the clock for the first year. And then I ran into you and said, will you please come help me organize my life? And that's how we got started. 